Welcome to the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Moore, and with me are my friends Ryan Kelly and Nick Pascarella. How are you gents doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks, Nick. I'm doing quite well. How are you doing? Well, after the interview we just had, I'm doing fantastic. So in the interest of time, we have, like I just said, a very special interview ahead of us, and we're just going to eliminate our usual talk about the local weather. So thanks for joining us, and let's jump right in. Back in October, as Rai Tai and I had just finished recording episode one of the podcast, we were discussing our love for the mighty F-4 Phantom. He asked me if I had listened to the F-4 episodes of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm a very frequent podcast listener, so I was very surprised to find out that there was an aviation podcast that I had somehow not stumbled across. I immediately added the Fighter Pilot Podcast to my download queue, and ever since, there has rarely been a commute that our guest has not been present in my speakers. We at Full Disc Aviation are thrilled to have the creator and host of this very podcast, retired Navy Commander Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. Jello, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. I guess we can get started. Would you just take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I was born and raised in California. Went to my first air show at eight years old and started a love for aviation that extended to remote control planes that my brothers and I used to fly when we were kids. And in high school, my stepdad sat me down one day. I can remember the conversation. He says, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? I said, I don't know, you know, like most kids, right? And he said, well, you seem to have an affinity for aviation and you love to go to those air shows. Why don't you think about being a fighter pilot. And at the time I thought, man, those guys are, you know, rock stars and I'm just a high school kid, but we worked together and he helped me out and I looked into what it took. And so I applied to the Naval Academy and they said, thanks, but no thanks. So then I applied to ROTC and didn't exactly get it right away, but eventually made my way to UCLA and the Navy Reserve Officer Training Corps program, where I was commissioned with a degree in mathematics in 1992, and I was selected for pilot training. So I went down to Pensacola, spent about a year sitting around waiting because there was the uh, big backlog of student pilots at the time, still kind of left over from the movie Top Gun a few years earlier. And I eventually started, made it into jets, made it to the F-18, and then went on from tour after tour, almost all the way without flying through 25 years. I did spend one non-flying tour at a staff job and uh, ended up leaving in early 2017 after almost 25 years of service, about 3,800 flight hours, 700 carrier landings, five deployments, one more on the ground in Afghanistan, not flying, and was a Top Gun instructor, different jobs at various places, just really had a fantastic time and was so blessed to have the opportunity to do it. Uh, Deployed all over the world, lived in different places, including Japan. Met my wife while I was waiting to start flight school and uh, ended up retiring with three great kids. And life has just been very good. That's fantastic. If you don't mind, I'd like to dig into the details a little bit. Um, You want to tell us a little bit more about uh, your decision to join the Navy versus uh, any of the other branches, uh, maybe also your commissioning and uh, the subsequent flight training? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was looking into it, I was well aware of both the Navy and the Air Force and to a lesser degree the Marine Corps. But for whatever reason, maybe it's because uh, my mother, who's a 
Danish immigrant to this country. Her background is with a very large shipping company that is originating uh, from Denmark. And so we've always just been near the ocean and the water's been important to me. And so the Navy just seemed a very logical choice over the Air Force. And as I was, as I alluded to earlier, trying to find my way into a program, I was very close to being accepted into a Marine Corps program where I would have been guaranteed an aviation slot, which is almost unheard of. And at the time, since I had no idea what the end of the story would be, I thought very closely or very carefully about doing that. And you know what? I decided I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Marines. I just don't see myself as one. So I turned it down and thankfully it worked out to uh, go to the ROTC after that. But I just decided the Navy was the right thing for me, and I was accepted, like I said, and I transferred to UCLA. And I enjoyed being at the unit there. You know, you spend a couple days a week doing ROTC-type things and certain classes you have to take. And then I can remember towards the end, right before I was uh, graduated and commissioned, where they had selection day, and the commanding officer lined us all up, and he brought us in his office one by one, and I can very vividly remember standing in front of his desk and he said, congratulations, you've been accepted for pilot training. And so I was, as you might expect, on cloud nine at that point. When you got that, you I assume you didn't know at that point that it was going to be fighter. Is that a no. true statement? That's correct, yeah. So everybody goes to the initial training together, even the naval flight officers who are crewmen that are not at the controls of the aircraft like a pilot. And then from that initial training, then you split off pilots and NFOs, and then all pilots go to initial training. At the time, it was in the T-34 Turbo Mentor, and in my case, it was at Whiting Field just out of Pens- outside of Pensacola, Florida. You can also go to Corpus Christi, Texas. And from that, depending on how well you do, they just rack and stack you. And I can also remember that day where I was finishing up at VT-2 was the squadron I was at, And I forget if it was the commanding officer or someone else. I don't think it was. But at any rate, he came in and he said, well, what if I told you you got P3s? And I said, well, you know, I'd probably be a little disappointed, but that's okay. I'm here to serve. At least that's what I told him. And he said, well, you got jets. And again, I remember just being on cloud nine. So at that point, depending on what you get, you split off and go to the specialized training. So for me, it was jets. For others, it was P3s. And then for yet others, it would be, uh, for example, helicopters. Very cool. So how long how long into flight training does that occur? Well, it depends how quickly you get through the training, which is partly up to you, but also partly up to weather and other things. So I was commissioned in August of 1992. I started flight school in August of 1993. And this now would have been probably in the spring, maybe very early summer of 94. So about two years after I was commissioned. But again, I spent a year of that waiting to start. Do you have any idea how many hours that was roughly? Uh, Yeah, well, I ended up with about 100 hours in the T-34 at that time. Ten years later, I went back and flew it again as a little side airplane in uh, one of the F-18 bases in California. And, uh, you know, they they have a syllabus, of course. You start with academics, and then you have simulators, and then you fly. And the flight syllabus was about 100 hours. And that wasn't necessarily a function of hours. It was a function of sorties. And as long as you get through the sorties and meet the training requirements, then you can progress to the next one. So about 100 hours is a short answer. Okay. One other question I had related to that. Did you ever have any flying experience before you joined up? 
Not really. We flew, like I said earlier, RC airplanes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, everybody knows about the little drones and seems like everybody flies them now. But back in the 80s and 90s, it was kind of a very niche, small thing. You might drive by a field and see the little planes buzzing around. And so I knew how flight controls worked and we'd crashed enough airplanes to know what you can and can't do. <laughs> and so um, I, I had some basic understanding of it. And then we did used to ride our bicycles down to the nearby little airfield and we'd offer to help wash someone's airplane and they might take us for a ride. But no, I did not have significant training at all. In fact, on my first several flights, I was still battling air sickness. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it was an extra stress for me to try to get through that part of it. And that's one thing I tell people when they reach out to me now on my show is, hey, I want to do this. What do you think I should do? I tell them, you know, get some flight experience so that you can get over that, you know, build the tolerance that your body needs to be familiar with it. But maybe not so much that you develop bad habits because, We've had guests on the show who have had a lot of flight experience and none. And sometimes I ask them just because I know it's important to the younger listeners who want to do this. And I think for the most part, a little bit of flight experience is good, but probably not too much because, again, you could build those bad habits that the Navy or Marine Corps or whoever doesn't want you to have. Do you think that actually could uh, could go against you in, in the selection uh, well, not necessarily in selection, but in your performance. And your performance right. will dictate your standing, and the standing will dictate perfor- uh, selection. So, yeah, within about a year and a half ago, I had two episodes in close proximity. One was on flight school, and my guest, uh, Major Walsh, who now flies F-15s, actually used to fly F-18s, um, he had said he didn't know a thing about aviation. So he showed up and they taught him everything and he was adaptable to learning and did well. And within a couple episodes of that, I interviewed Darren Chung, Wang, Wang Chung, of course. And he ended up being a Marine pilot and he had quite a bit of flight experience. And he said that in some ways it was helpful, but in a lot of ways he had to relearn things and they had to beat out of him habits that they didn't want. And so, uh, you know, again, I, I stand by my, you should have a little bit, but maybe not too much. Sure. Makes sense. So you started out in the uh, Turbo Mentor. Uh, where'd you go from there? Yeah. So that was in the Pensacola area. And then I moved up to Meridian, Mississippi and first flew the T2C Buckeye, which is now gone. And after that flew the TA4J Skyhawk, which is also gone. So when I, I assume that each of those I'm just going to say step ups in the aircraft, you know, uh, with that comes more speed, things happening faster. Uh, Just kind of want to get your description of uh, maybe the feeling of that first flight when uh, when everything just gets a lot faster than than the previous aircraft you were in. Right. Well, you know, speed is relative, uh, but you certainly do feel it when you're on the runway and low to the ground. I will tell you, I do recall my very first flight in the T2 Buckeye because uh, when I received orders up there, of course, you were so excited. And then the first thing they do is send you down for a little bit extra water survival training since now you're going to fly in jets. And so they want to make sure you understand all the parts of the ejection seats and and some of the water survival that goes along with that. And so then you get there and you do, again, the academics and the simulators. And one of the first things they want you to do is to learn how to fly instruments. So BI, they call it basic instruments. And then sometimes from there, your first flight will still be a FAM or familiarization. And you might have FAM 1, FAM 2. Well, my very first flight was a basic instrument flight after so many of the simulators. And not only that, it was in the back seat where you pull 
a shade over so you can't see outside. And not only that, it was nighttime. And so I'm fumbling with the lights. I've got all this new gear on. I've got a G-suit. I'm in the back. I'm, I hadn't flown in like a month between the moves and the simulators. And so I started to get a little airsick again. And I just remember thinking, oh, man, what have I done? Is this the right thing for me? <laughs> and uh, somehow I did the maneuvers and did sufficiently well to proceed. And and uh, I made it through that. But I do. I don't remember the first A4 flights, but I do remember flying the A4 and just thinking, "Oh man, how glorious is this?" And this is an airplane, as the expression goes. You, you don't really get in it. You kind of strap it on. It's mm. so small. If you sat, you know, with two beautiful people by your side and you put your arm around them, that's kind of like what it's like. You can put your arms around the jet and they will hang outside the cockpit because it's so small. <laughs> and it's just, it's an amazing airplane. And uh, they're still flying them. There are civilian companies that are flying them uh, every day out in Las Vegas for adversaries for the Air Force. And so there's a part of me that thinks it'd be really interesting to go back and fly the thing again 25 year or whatever it's been, you know, years later. It'd be really cool. So... Yeah, it, uh, the, the speed was, was definitely there. The T-34, you know, everything you did in that was, you know, 200 knots and less. And uh, the A-4, I want to say I had up over 500 knots within a year of leaving the T-34. So it, it comes quickly. Wow. So was all your instrument training, was that all in the T-2 or did you also do that in the T-34? Oh, all three aircraft, you do the same thing. And partly because they want you to have an understanding if you're out on a solo and something happens with the weather or you get delayed or something and they, you need to be able to navigate with the instruments. They want you to have the, the basic skills to do that. So it starts in T-34s, continues through T-2s. And then in the A-4, the culmination, and these days it would be the T-45, at least for the Navy and the Marine Corps, the, the culmination of all of your training are two different things that lead to your winging. Uh, one is your instrument card and that is your ability to no kidding navigate in instrument conditions i.e you can't see outside so you have to know how to do approaches and handle the communications with air traffic control and then of course the other thing is the carrier qualification and if you pass both of those as well as all the other requirements for different formation flights and dropping bombs and doing different things then you are awarded the coveted wings of gold and there's yet another day i remember very well very good when uh, when you started working on the carrier ops, what was the aircraft that you landed on the carrier the first time? Well, it was the A-4, and I will tell you, they had just not long before that changed it. It used to be that you would go to the carrier in the T-2, and so we worked up as if we were going to, but then they decided, you know what, we're just going to have one day at the field that we pretend is like going to the ship because you're going to go later in the A-4 anyway. So uh, I did all the FCLP, it's called Field Carrier Landing Practice in the T-2, and then we had our pseudo CQ day and then moved on to A-4s. And then, yes, in July of 1995, I landed aboard the USS Carl Vinson off the coast of San Diego for the first time. And Yet again, a memory that is burned in because mm -hmm. after hundreds and hundreds of practice landings where you are surrounded by, in the case of Meridian, Mississippi, trees and small lakes and the wind could come from any direction, whatever, you know, all of a sudden, and the runway is two miles long, right? All of a sudden, you're out over the, nothing but water and there's this big gray ship and you think, holy cow, I got to land on that thing. <laughs> and that gets your attention, let me tell you. I cannot even imagine. Yeah, no kidding. I, I am kind of curious, the, the land practice for that, um, it, do they simulate the cat shots and everything, or is it just the landing itself on a, on a simulated field? 
just the landings, the catapults, they teach you all about what to expect and you'll watch videos and go through chalk talks and different plans and briefings and whatnot. And then when you get out there, you do it. And a lot of the catapult, you're kind of along for the ride anyway. You have to know the hand signals and what to do when they tell you what to do. But as far as you go into what's called tension, where the aircraft's at full power and the catapult's just about ready to fire, and then at that point, you're really just along for the ride. As long as the trim is set correctly, it's going to hurl you off the front and you're going to all of a sudden be flying. And then at that point, you just take over flying and off you go. But the opposite end of this flight is the landing. And Unlike the catapult, everything is up to you. You have to fly the correct pattern relative to the ship or the field, whichever you might be doing. And you have to position your aircraft in the right piece of sky, trimmed up with the right you know, attitude and speed and flap configuration. And then you have to arrive through an imaginary hoop in the sky where you will then say, oh, okay, I see the lights. I'm lined up correctly. Now if I do meatball, line up, angle of attack, all the way down, I should touch down in the right spot. And that those terms, the meatball is the light system that is used on the ship, and there's reproductions of that at the field. Meatball lineup, lineup is just meaning I'm on the right Left and uh, I'm on the proper, I should say, left and right, so I'm right in the center. Meatball lineup and then angle of tack. Think about an airplane as you look at it from the side. Maybe if you have one on your desk, the angle of attack might be zero, but if you pick it up and cock it up, then it's got something greater than zero, and that's that's what angle of attack is, is the uh, difference between your flight path and the attitude of your aircraft. And so you want the attitude of the aircraft to be correct because that affects how the landing gear work and where the hook is. And so all of those have to be done all at once in a landing, and that's, frankly, I think what makes Navy and Marine Corps carrier-based pilots so darn good is they have to be able to do that safely and repeatedly. It's stirring a pot, and uh, I use various different analogies. Uh, you're a bit like a drummer who has to use every limb for you know a different instrument part. Uh, you're using your rudders, your arms, uh, your hands specifically, of course, for the stick and throttle. And, of course, your eyes have to be going left and right. And then you have to just keep focused. That's usually not a problem, but as you get more proficient, it's funny. You might find yourself in the middle of a landing thinking about something totally obscure, and you say, where did that come from? But that's just a function of proficiency. Did I hear correctly? I, I think I was listening to one of the episodes on the uh, carrier ops, but your first flight out there as a student, uh, you're solo? Yeah, absolutely. Would you want to get in my backseat when I was a student? <laughs> yeah. No, they, um, they, they send you out on your own, and I think it's, it's smart. It's not just safety, although there's an element to that. It really is uh, sink or swim, in a sense. It's like, look, you have come all this way. You are a fledgling naval aviator. We're going to do you a favor and not have anyone with you. You are literally on your own. And you've got to be able to do this. And it's a moment like no other because you're alone, but you're being watched. And it's up to you. And, you know, what What would be the advantage of somebody back there who, hey, man, a little bit more left or a little power, you know, the LSOs do that. But, uh, you know, if a guy's struggling, they might throw somebody in the back just to kind of see what he's doing and offer some suggestions later. But, yeah, it is, uh, hey, it's time to jump out of the nest and go soar. And uh, that's what makes eagles. That's awesome. So I think my final question on this topic is, how did your first trap go? It was awful. 
<laughs> I want to say it took me three tries because the first time I was too close to the guy in front of me, which was my fault. And so the, the guy in front of me had landed and the, the carrier just wasn't ready. And so they waved me off. Well, the second time I came around, and in case your listener is not familiar, you, you fly sort of a NASCAR type racetrack pattern where let's say the ship is going directly due north. Okay, well, you're going to be off to the left or west of the ship going due south. And if you are about a mile and a quarter a beam of the ship, then you're in the right position. But if you're a mile or less, you're too close. And if you're two miles, you're too far. Well, I must have been too close on the second one. And so as I went into my usual turn, because I was closer, the usual turn wasn't enough. And so I overshot so badly, they just sent me up the side and said, all right, just go up and do it again. And by the time I uh, came around the third time, I finally did land. And uh, the wires on the back of a carrier are numbered from, from back to front. And they're one, two, three, and four. Some carriers these days only have three. But if you imagine as you're coming down, if you want to hit right in the very middle of all four of those, you're going to land between the two and the three. And then your momentum will carry you into the three. So the standard terminology for naval aviators is an OK three wire. And the OK grade is like an A. And we, of course, understate it. OK, just, you know, being that's eh, good enough kind of thing. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's an understatement. But an OK three is what you want. And my very first pass was a one wire. So I ended up low. <laughs> and I want to say it was a no grade. So if if, uh, if an okay is an A, then a no grade is like a, a C or a D. So it's, it's not that great. But I, from there, rebounded well enough to uh, qualify on my first try, which not everybody does. And I think they took it easy on me, frankly. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I ended up making it 10, 10 landings and four touch and goes, and you're considered a qual. And I'll bet not one of them is the same. No, in fact, you know what I ended up doing? It's really funny. I did one one wire, two twos, three threes, and four fours. Isn't that funny? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And no bolters, and of course, I had a couple of those earlier wave-offs. But so anyway, and a bolter is just when you miss all the wires. Is there one lesson you learned early on in your flight training that stayed with you and helps you out quite a bit in uncertain situations on the boat or flying from the boat? You know, not necessarily a mantra I would repeat to myself, but... I did just have to tell myself, you can do this. Now, your listeners, if they're not familiar with fighter pilots, might believe the Hollywood stereotype that we are all egotistical maniacs who have no mm -hmm. problem with self-confidence. And uh, we can get any girl or guy that we just so choose or, you know, whatever the case is. We drive fast cars. In reality, <laughs> we are people who find our way into the business and we are, come from all walks of life. And you know, I'll be totally honest with you guys. I have always struggled a little bit with my self-confidence. I mean, I was a younger brother. I was not the oldest, uh, like many fighter pilots are. And I have a picture of myself standing on a chair at my fifth birthday at some ice cream parlor. And I'm just holding my hands in front of my face, just nervous. I didn't like the attention. And, uh, you know, I'm my own biggest critic to this day. And so... For me, I just had to be able to say, look, you've been trained, you know what to do, just do it. Just, you know, have some confidence, just believe in that you can do it. And if you can't, believe that it's going to be okay either way, because the absolute worst you can do is sabotage yourself. And so what I said is, you know what, I'm going to just give it what I got. If that's good enough, awesome. If it's not, at least I'll know. Because if I never even tried and I just was standing in some 
cubicle one day and happened to look out the window and a jet went flying by, I would wonder, you know, was I good enough? Could I have done it? And so I just, that's kind of the approach I took all through this is, hey, let me just see if I can get in. Oh, wow, okay. Well, the Naval Academy said no, but ROTC said yes. Okay, let's see if I can get flight training. Let's see if I can get jets. Let's see if I can get F-18s. Let's see if I can go to Top Gun. And so it, it, it's worked out and I still have to tell myself, hey, you know, it's, you're, you're probably good enough. Just do your best and let the results fall where they may. That's cool. That's a good approach. So one of the things that I always wondered, um, and I was in sales for years um, before I got into my current role, and any new job that I took, it always felt like it was sipping water from a fire hose. So I always kind of wondered whenever you got to a new jet, whether it was going to the T2, uh, up to the A4, or even over to the uh, the Hornet, did you ever feel like you were kind of put out there and, and you know, sipping water from a fire hose and... Um, or did you ever feel that the training was so proficient that you never felt overwhelmed? Well, I would say it did feel at times like drinking from a fire hose, but I always felt like, you know, there are people ahead of me doing this and I may not be as smart as the smartest one, but I'm not as dumb as the dumbest. So if other people can do it, I can do it. And I just try to approach it with, okay, what do you need me to know right now? And that's what I'll do. And if I have time to get ahead, I'll try. And you might think that having spent a year, as I said earlier, sitting around waiting to start, that I would have been perfectly prepared for flight school by the time I got there. Of course not. (laughs) We're at the beach and we're partying. And, and, you know, I ended up meeting my wife one night on St. Patrick's Day, actually. And so, uh, you know, when it got closer, like, oh, crap, I guess I better start studying. Uh, But that's, that's leftover from college. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. And so... You, you just you do what you what it takes and and that's the one thing that I was lucky to not have a lot of distractions I mean I didn't have uh, a sick mother uh, or I wasn't married and, and or had kids I mean I was able to go through and just focus on the training and so there were times it was busier sure so you'd leave earlier and come home later but what else was I gonna do I mean this this was the rest of my life and so I gave it my absolute utmost attention and I don't know why I keep mentioning it but uh, again back to my wife so when we met of course she was uh, you know in, in love with me and I was in love with her but I said look right now I'm married to flight school so I hope you don't lose interest and and split but I really have to dedicate myself to this because this is important this is the rest of my life and God bless her. She uh, held on. And, and once I got my wings, it didn't take long after that before I proposed. But um, I just I told myself, OK, if it's busy right now, so be it. All right. Open wide and, and take the drink from the fire hose and do what you got to do. Stay up late, you know, and all that. But um, when times are slower, then you can catch up on all those other things. And so I, I just I, it, there were busy times, but I felt like I was able to handle it. Awesome. Uh, the. Um so I know you had time in the A4, the uh, the F18, and the F16, which is not your typical resume for most naval aviators. Um, so which of those would you say that you enjoyed flying the most? And naturally, I'm going to ask why. Well, you know, you might think that's a simple question, but in reality, to me, it's kind of a loaded question because... Mm-hmm. When I first was selected for the F-18, man, I was so thrilled. And when I flew it, I loved it. And I did for over 3,000 hours. I mean, it was a steady companion. I knew where everything was. I knew that aircraft better than I think I knew just about almost anything. Well, then along towards the end of my career comes this cute little F-16. And I, I will 
not make any more comparisons to my previous previous example because I don't want to get myself in trouble. But you know, imagine you've <laughs> you've been doing something for a long time, and along comes something else <laughs> that is uh, you know <laughs> sleek and fast and fun, and 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 so the F sixteen was just a blast to get into, and it had to do with the fact that it was new to me. It was a very old aircraft, the F-16s that the Navy flies, um, but it was new to me, and so to learn something new was exhilarating. The performance was amazing, but also you sit differently, you fly it differently, and unlike the F-18, which has a piece of metal right in front of you, the canopy bow, as we call it, the F-18 has a, uh, sorry, the F-16 has a one-piece canopy, and so you feel like you're perched on top of a rocket being hurled through space, and so <laughs> I greatly enjoyed that. But if you had to ask me, and some of my listeners occasionally do, hey, you know, if you had to pick one to go to war or if you had to say which one was your favorite, I'd, I'd have to go back to my good old F-18. Okay. Well, that's going to lead me right to the next question. Um, and this is probably a loaded one as well. But was there – which aircraft of those was, you know, more pilot-friendly that no matter what kind of crap weather a day was, whether it was, you know, IMC conditions or it was a beautiful sunny day, calm winds – um, you know, which one was the most pilot friendly to fly? Well, I find myself suddenly feeling like I'm a practicing politician here because I'm going to give you a <laughs> depends answer. So the F-16, <laughs> uh, the F-16 has civilian ILS, which believe it or not, the Navy F-18s do not. You think wow. it's crazy. And I think they put them in the Blue Angels. We do have an ILS for the ship, but it's not compatible with shore. And so if I were out and the weather came down, in an F-18, we could do what's called a PAR, Precision Approach Radar, mm -hmm. where you basically have a guy on the ground or gal who's looking at your position in space and telling you where you are deviating, and it's up to you to correct. And so there's a lot of moving parts to that, and it's not quite, if you ask me, as precise as an ILS. On the other hand, an F-16 has a single engine where the F-18 has two. And so if you have a problem with your aircraft, you have a little bit more redundancy in the F-18. Mm -hmm. Now, the F-16s that the Navy flies are Block 15s, and they're not upgraded. I think they may be the last oldest. I know that's probably poor grammar structure, but they're really old <laughs> F-16s. And so they were not particularly... Uh, pilot friendly in the systems that they offered. Now you go jump in a block 50 or 60 F-16 and man, they've got nice displays and all kinds of mm -hmm. cool stuff. So, uh, although I've not flown one, but anecdotally, that's what I know from our guests. And so I would say that overall for me, uh, again, just if, if I had to be in one of the aircraft when the weather started getting real yucky and something was wrong, I would again, take the F-18 because of the redundancy number one, but also because Again, I just knew the aircraft so well. There was parts like any, not to say I was an expert, but you know, if you, if you think about anyone who's at the top of their game, they can see and feel and sense things that others cannot. You know, think of quarterbacks who've been in the NFL for a long time or, or batters who have faced hundreds and hundreds of pitches. You know, they can see within the moment the pitcher releases it what it's going to do and they can hit it. And so... I felt like that in the F-18. I never felt like that in the F-16, but I only ended up with 170 hours in the F-16. And they're, uh, the Navy's F-16s, they're A models, right? So they're Block 15s? A's and B's, yeah. They and have B's. 10 okay. A's and 4 B's. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm, I'm sure a few of our listeners do know, and for those that don't, the F-16 has a pretty distinguishing feature on it, is that the stick is not between your legs. It's on the side. Right. So how... You know, what was the transition like and the, the biggest differences going from 
you know, the stick and the Hornet to a pressure-sensitive side stick of the F-16? You know, I asked my instructors that when I started the F-16 training, and they all just kind of looked at me like, you'll get it. And I thought, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But <laughs> after you do a handful of simulators, and they do have a simulator there in, in Fallon, uh, just east of Reno, Nevada, then you, you jump in, and it's actually quite natural. Now, granted, at that point, I had over 3,000 hours in military fighters, and so I just didn't really struggle with it. Um, what was interesting is I found myself, after not flying the F-18 for a month, even though I'd flown it almost nonstop for the preceding 20 years, and I was just doing my F-16 training, when I finally finished my F-16 training and went back in the F-18, I would be you know, out flying, and maybe I'd reach down to, to flip a switch or write something down, and I would almost already instinctively put my hand back where the F-16 stick was, and I wouldn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And I'd look inside, like, oh, duh, it's over here. <laughs> and then conversely, in the F-16, when I was writing something down, let's say after a, a dogfight, and you want to take some notes, I would find myself pinching my knees together to try to fly the jet, because in the F-18, you can fly it with your knees. You just pinch it together, and you can go <laughs> left and right. It's kind of hard to go up and down. And you don't have that opportunity uh, in the F-16. And so I didn't find it to be particularly difficult to adjust. And then once I got proficient, I didn't find it difficult to go back and forth. And I did find, I will say, the F-16 seating to be very comfortable. It's more reclined than the F-18. The F-16s we had had almost like a sheepskin cover on the seats, which was really comfortable. <laughs> and then it just, to me, I, the analogy I like to use is like being in your favorite Lazy Boy recliner with a remote for the TV in one hand and maybe a drink or something in the other. And you can just sit there and relax. And yeah, wow. the F-16 was definitely a joy to fly in that regard. Awesome. I mean, I <clears throat> I went going from flying a uh, Cessna 172 to a Cirrus. I mean, that's not even c- close to comparable, but... Um, I was worried about the transition too, and and like you said, it it, it just kind of felt natural. I mean, it yeah. was much more of a sensitive airplane, but um, no, it definitely felt natural. And yeah, you also mentioned uh, you know writing something down after uh, a dogfight. One thing I've always wondered is you know you're pulling six, seven, sometimes eight G's in a dogfight or not more. What is you know what is it like to have to keep your you know head cranked around checking out your six? Uh, to keep an eye on the other guy, why pull in those types of Gs? Uh, it's painful. And yeah. what you want to try to do in a scenario where you are what we would call defensive is try not to move your head while you're under the heavy Gs. If you can, just like the anti-G straining mover maneuver itself, you want to start it before you pull the Gs. And so mm-hmm. if I knew I needed to look over my left shoulder, let's say I would try to maneuver my head first and then come on with the heavy G's because moving under G's is very difficult. I mean, your head is already, uh, what does he say in Jerry Maguire, like eight pounds or something. And uh, <laughs> you, add, you add another eight pound helmet on that. And, uh, you know, that there's a lot of fighter pilots out there. Let's say this former pi- fighter pilots with neck problems. And mm-hmm. I'm one of them. I mean, it's, it's not a problem. It just hurts from time to time, sure. but it, yeah, that, that can be a chiropractic nightmare for guys who do that a lot. And it just, your neck gets very thick very quickly. If you ever look at the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds, those guys, of course, they work out a lot anyway. But uh, you, you learn very quickly to uh, bulk up in the areas you need to to mm-hmm. sustain those kinds of maneuvers. And, and uh, it, it is effort. It certainly is. How is it that you uh, communicate when you're, when you're trying to do that? Well, you sound like this because you're under so much G. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's not easy. Um, you you got to bear down and and you got to hope that for the moment you don't have to communicate. But yes, generally you're 
communications are strained. And that's one thing, just on a side note, that you learn, although it's not really taught per se, but you learn to start interpreting what you hear from your wingman. And so when you hear that, of course, he might tell you he's defensive or maneuvering or whatever, but you can hear the tone of his voice and, and the pitch. And uh, in fact, towards the end of my career, when um, hypoxia was a real issue, the the thing at the time then was to, you know, listen to what he sounds. Does he sound drunk? Because if he does, then he's probably deprived of oxygen and you need to just be directive. Hey, so-and-so, you know, descend or put your mask on or go to 100% oxygen or whatever. Usually we're 100% anyway. But uh, we, so you, you learn to uh, detect from the other guy if you can. But you, you do your best to uh, communicate even under, under heavy G. It's intense. It does sound intense. I'm trying to picture this as, uh, as we're talking here. Do you have any, uh, you know, air-to-air or uh, air-to-ground engagements that particularly stick out to you? Well, for air-to-air, I mean, it was somewhat uneventful after it was over, but I was out on a BFM mission with my commanding officer at Top Gun at the time, Mm -hmm. and uh, just the two of us, and we start what we call perch BFM, where one starts offensive, one starts defensive, so that you can see how you each do. And it's kind of scripted at the start so that you have very set parameters from which to deviate. And then after that, there are certain recommendations that will, Top Gun believes, make you the most effective you can be. Well, so I was offensive on this day, and my skipper was defensive initially. And he ended up going into a vertical maneuver. And as I rolled to follow him and pulled, all of a sudden the aircraft just said, I'm not going to go down and to the left anymore. I'm going to yaw, roll, and pitch up and to the right. And that's what's w- what we call departure from controlled flight. And in the F-18, when that happens, you simply let go of the controls. Of course, you call knock it off to stop the training as well. But when the aircraft is not doing what you want it to do or is doing something that you don't want it to, then you are in departed flight. And thankfully, it was over pretty quickly. Um, but I'm trying to imagine, you know, again, let's say if I were heading 45 degrees down and if you were looking down on my aircraft and I was, let's say, going to the north, well, then the aircraft, which was 45 degrees down and going to the north, ended up about, and let's call it um, about 90 degrees uh, rolling to the left. I ended up about 45 degrees angle of bank to the right, pointing east with a nose up about 10 degrees. So it's like it came oh up and to the right, slicing and rolling and, and not doing what I wanted. But thankfully, I, you know, it was very sudden, but I released the controls right away. And so I you know, didn't end up in a spin or anything else. But it was just very memorable because I kept at the time a video copy of different things, just almost like a highlights reel. And you had to be careful that it wasn't classified, of course, but I kept it at the, at the safe there at Top Gun anyway. Well, lo and behold, two months later, we had a mishap where a pilot departed controlled flight. It wasn't that same exact airplane, but it was another F-18. And the mishap board of other pilots came around and was interviewing people. And they interviewed me and I said, yeah, that happened to me in a different jet. In fact, I have a copy of it. And they said, uh, we want to see that. And I never saw the tape again. So, uh, but thankfully the pilot ejected and was, was fine. And they ultimately later fixed a few things in the flight control logic that was not helping that situation. But yeah, that was a, that was an interesting situation that, that happened to me. And I, I'm not saying I didn't have to, you know, not, a, I'm getting tongue tied. I'm not saying I saved it 
uh, and that he had to eject because he was a lesser pilot. I just think that his departure was a little more uh, sustained and he was closer to the ground than I was. I had more time to recover. So mm-hmm. it was just a, a flaw in the software at the time. Wow. Still scary nonetheless. Yeah. For air to ground, you asked about that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can, I can think of many a time, of course, there are plenty of times that I didn't do this too, but to be fair, uh, but plenty of times where you would roll in on a target dropping 25-pound Mark 76 practice bombs, and they have a little smoke charge in the nose, and you'd try to drop it. Now, granted, it still is a computerized aiming system, so you can do a lot better than you did in the A4, which was purely iron sights, and you had to get everything in the right spot. Um, but, you know, dropping one of those from a mile or two up and then coming up off of the target and rolling over and looking down and seeing that smoke charge go off right on the target, uh, that's just a, a joyful experience because <laughs> it's it's r- immediately positive reinforcement. Um, but there, there's a, a particular flight in uh, 2003 that I flew. Actually, no, it was 1999, excuse me, uh, over Iraq uh, during Operation Southern Watch. This is before 9-11 where I employed a 500-pound laser-guided weapon on an anti-aircraft artillery piece that was shooting at us. And so it was a relatively uh, unremarkable employment, but it was memorable in so much as prior to that, and that was my first tour. I was a lieutenant, so I hadn't been at it for very long, but that was 1999. I'd been commissioned since 92, so for seven years, roughly, I'd been training for that moment. And nobody, at least I, don't want war. Nobody wants, I don't want war. And, but if there's going to be one, I want to know that I'm going to do a good job. And my weapon hit where I aimed and, and did the tasking that we were assigned. And so I I was, that was a memorable one as well. Mm. Did you receive a lot of AAA at that time? No, No. not a whole lot. They, they shot at us on that particular mission and maybe some others. Usually you can get away from it. It's not like you hear about in world war two where you feel like you can get out of the airplane and walk on it, you know? Yeah. Um, but in, and again, in 2003, when I was there in April, then, uh, of course, there was quite a bit more than as far as well as uh, ballistic surface to air missiles that were employed. It wasn't your job to take care of any of that, right? Or for the most no, part? No, not generally. No, I was never like an iron hand is the mission you're talking about. I mean, we used to employ high speed anti-radiation missiles or harm. And uh, I never did in, in anger, but we did in training. Uh, but these days, uh, it's the EA-18 Growler that would do the electronic attack. And in those days, it was the EA-6B Prowler that would be more involved with uh, snuffing the uh, surface-to-air threats like that. Did you ever get to uh, shoot the gun at night? No, I never did, unfortunately. Oh. I was always wondering if that's you know disorienting or, or you know if it, the flash bothers or something like that, kind of like strobe lights in the, uh, in the clouds. There is a video on YouTube somewhere of a guy doing it, and it looks like Star Wars hyperspace. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's what I saw. I, I think uh, it, it looked more like you go hyperspeed, and then all of a sudden you're, you know, it's back to Black Knight, and you have to go instruments to figure out where you are. Yes, that's what I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you ever have any times... Um, I'm just going to say this wasn't on the list, but I thought of it earlier today and I forgot to put it on there. So I apologize. That's right. Um, did you ever have any times coming back to the carrier, uh, where, uh, really bad, uh, IMC conditions and it was just like, holy crap, like, you know, really put to the test and you get down and you get back to the debrief and you're like, well, I'm just happy I'm back on the deck. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> Multiple times. Uh, there was one particular time uh, we were coming down, and the landing signal officers, who are pilots who are not flying at the moment but are standing on the back of the ship to guide you down safely, mm-hmm. who made a, a 99 call, which is simply, hey, everybody, listen up. And they said, it's nighttime. They said, 99, taxi lights on. And what that is is the big white light on the nose wheel. If you've been to an airport lately at night, mm-hmm. even, you know, San Francisco or someplace where you see them taxiing around, it's those big white lights that blind you if you look into them. Well, you don't normally use those at the ship. And the reason he asked us to turn those on is because he couldn't see us. It was foggy. And it, when you turn on a bright white light, well, at least they get something sooner. And mm-hmm. if they can see that, then listening to their, your engines, believe it or not, and seeing where that light is, they can pretty much guide you the rest of the way down. And that sounds crazy, and it is, but um, yeah, they did that one time. And to make matters worse, it wasn't like they needed it at the last second. They, they needed it, and then I, so I finally get close enough, and he goes, all right, turn your taxi light off. I'm like, wait, are you kidding? I'm doing everything <laughs> in my power to look outside and do what I got to do. Now I got to come down. Because the F-18, as with most fighter aircraft, have fantastic what's called HOTAS, hands on throttle and stick. So when you're in a fight for your life, everything you need is theoretically under one of your 10 fingers. Uh, and sometimes fingers have more than one purpose. And so the taxi light is not one of those. So I had to look inside, find the stupid thing, turn it off, then look back outside. And you don't think it takes very long, but man, it doesn't take long at all to get off of where you were a moment ago and to figure out which way you're deviating. Mm -hmm. And so I did not uh, have a very good time with that, but I was able to keep him from blinding him effectively. Uh, That was one particular night. And then there was another night where there was significant convective weather all around the carrier and flying in and out of thunderstorms with bolts of lightning flashing everywhere. And it was raining. And they would put you in an orbit sometimes if someone ahead of you didn't land. And then that would be disorienting. And with the flashing going off, you couldn't tell which way was up or down. And then you just you, you finally come down and you land and you're just thinking, oh, my goodness. But uh, to, to the point of getting on deck and, you know, saying, wow, I'm glad to be back. Um, in 2005, I was deployed aboard USS Nimitz, and a camera crew was out there for the entire deployment. They ended up making a special on PBS. It's like eight parts long. It's called PBS Carrier. And I don't have very many speaking parts in it, unlike some of my friends. But there was one particular night, it was during the Pitching Deck episode, where we were off the coast of Australia. And it took me three landings to get aboard. The first time, I just literally did not touch anything on the ship. I was so out of phase with the carrier, which was bobbing uh, from normal down 20 feet and up 20 feet. So it was 40-foot swings of a you know 100,000-ton ship, 1,000 feet long. So you can imagine what the sea was like. And I, didn't, I just didn't touch anything. The next time around, I touched down, but my hook missed the wires. And the third time I landed and came downstairs and was just glad to be alive. I walk into the ready room, and they have TVs in there where the pilots who aren't flying can watch the landings. And they just started clapping. They were just so, <laughs> so glad to have me back, but also, hey, you did it, you know, yay. And I just was tired, relieved, uh, you know, all the adrenaline is leaving my body and boom, here comes a camera crew, stick a camera in my face. Hey, you know, what was that like? So, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that, that is the, the Navy pilots and the Marines who go to the ship, they definitely, they definitely earn their pay on those nights. Yeah, no kidding. What's it like uh, landing with big swells? It sucks. <laughs> um, because what you have is you have a light system that's theoretically 
Yeah, it's theoretically stabilized for the ship's movement, but if the swells are either big enough or fast enough that they that the lens can't keep up, well, then the landing signal officers have a manual system where they can direct you the way they want you to. And you can be doing everything just perfectly, following what they're showing you and doing everything, and all of a sudden the swell can stop or it can change or something can happen and you just don't flat out don't land. And when that happens, number one, it's a chink in your confidence. Uh, but number two, it's you just burned a lot of fuel. And number three, you're just out there longer and so you get a little more fatigued. And so it's it's no fun. Um, that particular night I just told you about when I had three attempts, we flew earlier that day and I did. And I never remember seeing it, but other people said when they were doing their landing, remember I told you you do that half circle type uh, NASCAR type approach. Mm-hmm. They said when they were right abeam the ship going the opposite direction they could look and see this the propellers or the screws we call them out of the water oh, and i never remember seeing that but for those who did they said well that gets your heart rate going I bet. So, <laughs> yeah it's 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 a challenge because it makes everything that's already difficult way more difficult and it reduces <laughs> even more the margin of error man yeah i can't imagine landing on a downhill runway in my skyhawk let alone <laughs> doing it over the ocean like that yeah. Well, I, I will say that, I mean, you are obviously trained in so much as the air, that airplane and whatever calls you have, but, you know, nobody goes to the carrier just all of a sudden after 200 hours in a Cessna. Uh, you, you work up for years in different aircraft and everything else to get there. So uh, ideally, by the time you get there, you should be proficient in doing it, but it's it's still a challenge, no doubt about it. I'm always amazed at just the incredible control inputs on all the control surfaces uh, if you watch any approach uh, it's just you know seeing the rudders seeing the elevators and the uh, ailerons working all in tandem uh, it's just incredible to watch oh it's non-stop it is continually making small multiple repeated inputs the entire way down stick throttle and rudders yeah, yeah. not so much the rudders but a little bit you can what is your approach speed landing on the boat in the uh, in the hornet in the Hornet, it was about 133-ish knots. Hmm. And in the Super Hornet, it might have been a little slower than that, maybe about 129 or so. Hmm. Plus or minus. Of course, it depends on what you're carrying, how heavy you are, et cetera. Are you thinking about any uh, any of those movements at all, or is it completely automatic? Is everything just training and doing exactly what's needed to be done without thinking about it? Well, and that's, of course... Right. What is the uh, difference between a beginner and someone with proficiency or an expert is, you know, everyone starts as a beginner and you've got to learn these things and and you you want to get through that phase as quickly as you can. And so at the beginning, that's why so many young pilots struggle is because they just forget or they just don't know. They don't have the experience to say, okay, when you see this, you need to add a little power or you need to go a little bit to the right or whatever the case is. And then later, as with most things, I mean, I'm not a violinist, but I have to think that a person who's playing, if you ever listen to classical music, I mean, they're just playing these amazing pieces and it's so fast. And I think to myself, there's no way they're reading that note for note. And I assume that they are just looking at the sheet and they know what's coming and their mind can take clusters and and clumps of of music at a time and say, okay, we rehearsed this a hundred times last week. And so I just know what to do. My fingers, right. And so Mm -hmm. you get to that point. Eventually the the ones who are better at it, then get to be better at landings because it it comes to them more naturally. Some of us work at it our entire careers. And, and the idea is though, eventually 
you just know you've got seat of the pants. You, you've seen it enough times that you just know what you've got to do and you try to do it. Um, one of the ways that instructors, the landing signal officers, will, will work with, with young pilots getting to that point is they have these little... Uh, what's the word I want? Not mnemonics, but they just, they have these repeatable things and they'll literally say them out loud. Never lead a low and slow. Always lead a high and fat. And these just different things I won't bother explaining. But um, the idea being is if you repeat it over and over and over in the brief and to yourself and on your drive home or whatever, then it will eventually sink itself into your subconsciousness and then that will affect the way you fly the ball. And so that's one thing they do. At least they did when I was a student. It's a good way to remember things. Yeah. And I used to talk to myself, too. Uh, just, you know, okay, you're going a little low, or, you know, I'd just kind of give myself a little pep talk or whatever on the way down, especially when you're waiting to come down at night and it's just you sitting up in, in Marshall, as it's called. You know, you're like, okay, you got this. And you can almost chair fly it while you're flying. You know, you can imagine what you're going to see, what you're going to say, what you're going to do, just to kind of warm up, you know. Basically be your own IP. Yeah, effectively, or your own cheerleader, frankly, too. It's almost like watching the... Uh... Blue Angels go through their briefing and they're all sitting there with their eyes closed and, you know, hands on the stick, hands on the throttles, and they're talking through the maneuvers. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So, I'd be remiss to ask since this, uh, you know, Full Disc is an aviation photography uh, media outlet. Um, And we have to ask one photography question Did you ever do any air to air photo shoots in your years of service? Oh, yeah. Quite quite a bit, sanctioned and otherwise. Um, I've got a pretty decent repository of photos and videos, and we would also go up and uh, take pictures next to tankers or landmarks at different times. And so, I myself am not much of a shutterbug, but I was involved with it, and uh, thankfully I accrued enough material to now help promote the Navy's uh, recruiting goals. At least I like to think that's what I'm doing through our YouTube channel and Instagram, uh, showing people what a great, glamorous, and uh, amazing life you can have as a military pilot. Awesome. Fantastic. Do you have any favorite shots? Yeah. uh, Actually, one I didn't take is uh, we were over Iraq uh, back in 2003 or five. I forget. And, uh, you know, we're just sitting there getting fuel off of a big tanker of some sort. And uh, the co-pilot of the right seater in the tanker said, hey, pull up alongside so I can take a picture. And uh, my wingman and I was in the lead at the time, pulled up, and I happened to raise my arm to wave. And he goes, hey, give me your email address. I'll send it to you. So I spelled it phonetically over the air to the guy and didn't think much of it. Uh, Figured, you know, maybe he'll get around to it. Maybe he won't. And he sent it to me not long after that. And it's a great shot. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's me. It's not the jet with my name on it, but that's okay. You can't read it anyway, but you can see my distinctive yellow visor that I started wearing as a young pilot and always wore. And now it's kind of my calling card, I guess. And, uh, I got my arm up in the air waving and my wingman's in the background and, uh, it's a good one. I've got another one similar to that where I took a picture of my shadow on the side of a tanker. So you see this KC-10 or whatever it was, and on the side of it is a black shadow of an F-18, which was pretty cool. Mm. Um, And then I've got a handful of various selfies that I've taken that are, you know, interesting for various reasons. But, yeah, there's I've got a bunch of sunset pictures from up there, but, you know, if you move a little bit, it blurs, and it's just never quite the same as experiencing it. So a lot of those are etched into my memory, but, uh, yeah, definitely good times up there. I've often been curious, you know, on that on that same topic. Do you do you guys take 
cell phones up or I mean even you know back in 2003 and and prior was that a point and shoot camera or what did you have with you uh, I used to take, well, first off, the squadron would issue, depending where you were, cameras to take with you because they wanted to see what ships, if you were doing, let's say, a surface search of the area around the carrier, if you flew by a ship, they wanted you to take a picture of it. And, of course, there was all sorts of risk management that they wanted you to do for autopilot and not flying into the water while you're taking a stupid picture, right? Um, but <laughs> later on, I did fly with a cell phone, and I mostly did that at least ashore when we weren't deployed in case I diverted because if I took off and, and didn't land where I anticipated landing, well, I needed my wallet and a phone in order to d get the things done that I needed to do. And so, uh, yeah, I took a handful of, of pictures that way, but I also used to, in the old days, have one of those little, I don't even remember what brand it was, but a little, you know, colorful uh, point and click type of thing and got some decent images that way. Very cool. So you mentioned earlier that you spent time at Top Gun you talk about this in episode seven of your podcast, but tell us a little bit about how that all came about. And I, I assume it didn't have anything to do with an unfortunate experience with a MiG-28. <laughs> <laughs> no, it did not. Although I guess arguably you could say it did because the movie, uh, you know, naturally had an effect on me. And I, I recognized the further I got into my career that it wasn't reality, but there was still this thing called Top Gun and those guys were Jedi Knights. And I thought, man, that's pretty cool. And halfway through my first tour as a young lieutenant, I was thinking about what do I want to do next. And when you go to Top Gun, you leave there and you go to a squadron as what's called their training officer. And you are responsible for making everybody as effective and proficient and lethal as they can possibly be. And so we had a training officer come to our squadron who had been basically the number one guy at Top Gun position-wise. And he was and is uh, very smart, very articulate, uh, very good at just about everything he does. And we became fast friends and still are to this day. And he said, Jello, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. You know, he's talking about after that tour. And he goes, have you thought about Top Gun? I said, well, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know if they would take me or whatever it's like. And he, he worked on me a little bit. And, and at the time, and even today, as we talk about on episode seven, it's, it's a real vetting process for the applicants. And as I understood it later, uh, he was so highly regarded on the staff that he basically said, hey, guys, I think you should take Jello." And they all looked at each other in the staff meeting. And they said, all right. Any objections? Okay, cool. He's in. <laughs> and so I, I always hoped that later they didn't uh, regret that or, or give him any grief. But um, uh, I, I can remember, again, uh, the different snapshots in my career mentally. I can remember sitting at my uh, dinner table with my, uh, let's see, were we, yeah, we were married by then, uh, my wife and my in-laws. And uh, this train officer called me and he said, good news, dude. They took you. You're in. I said, that's awesome. And so... Uh, I, I ended up uh, going in the spring of 2000 and stayed until almost the end of 2002. And I still consider that my high water mark in my career. It was a very formative time, very trying in many ways, but just an amazing tour. So when you were there, were you training or instructing or both? Everything, learning, teaching. Uh, you show up, you go through as a student, and then you know you're staying, not like the movie, so you already know you're staying. And then they give you a subject that you are to become the subject matter expert of. And then you start working through your different qualifications. 
And so you're always there, you're always learning, you're always helping someone else learn, you're always sitting through someone else's murder board or getting ready for your own. And when you leave there, you are probably the best fighter pilot you will ever be or anyone will ever be because you've done nothing but surround yourself with other Jedis, if you will, and you are doing nothing but tactics all the time. You're not doing carrier landings. You're not doing leadership stuff with enlisted troops, which is good and bad, but you know, there's a season for that too. Uh, you are just doing tactics, talking it, flying it, debriefing it, thinking about it nonstop for a couple of years. And man, those guys, when they come out of there, they are darn good. Is it uh, like a career type of thing where you go in and I mean, or somebody could go in and be there for a very long time, or does it just continue to roll over every couple of years as they bring in new talent that, that trains and then teaches and then moves on and then kind of rinse, lather, repeat? It, more of the latter. So it is a two, two and a half, three year tour generally. You spend part of that getting your qualifications, and then there's a relatively narrow window where they get some return on investment out of you as you teach the next generation. But yes, the. You know, assembly line is constantly marching on, and there are people leaving, people coming, guys in the middle, and it is, uh, you can come back, but you generally can't stay longer than three years, typically. Okay. You mentioned the murder board. Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So my first subject was threat aircraft. And so I was responsible for being the instructor on the staff who knew virtually as much as possible everything that is about the threat aircraft at the time, which for us was the MiG-29 Fulcrum and SU-27 Flanker. And what happens is you have a subject like that and you'd go and the first thing you do is you, of course you took it over from someone else and so you say hey what do you think needs changed because you know at the end you get maybe a little sterile with it or, or you just don't change things because you know the next guy will but you you ask him what do you think we should do different where should we spend our time but you do a bunch of research and then you decide what's going to change if anything about the lecture compared to how your predecessor gave it and then you start putting your version of it together and you start rehearsing to yourself or maybe some buddies if you can get them to listen. And then you go through a series of about eight to 10 practice presentations. And you go through this where you are not referencing notes. You're not looking at the slides except to point something out. You're not reading the screen. You're not making a big deal out of mistakes. You're not distracting the students with touching yourself or scratching or whatever. I mean, it, you, you are to be an efficient instrument of information and education. And they have to beat out of you all the ums and ahs and little ticks and nuances that you have to make you as good as you can possibly be. And if you have the information in your brain and you can present it distraction-free and error-free well enough, then you go to what's called the murder board. And that whole thing is called the murder board process. And at the murder board, every bro, and that's just the name of an instructor at Top Gun, regardless of gender, is <laughs> in the room. And you give it to them. And they critique you, and if they give you the collective thumbs up, then you've passed, and you are then the Navy's subject matter expert on that subject. And if you don't, as is often the case for some people, then you get to do it again. And they want to hold the very high standard that Top Gun was founded with, and it's an exacting standard. And the beauty of it is you get to learn a lot about yourself and the subject that you never thought 
possible. The downside of it is you never look at any other organization's presentation quite the same because you've learned to not tolerate silliness like slide animations and people <laughs> taking big, long, extended drinks in the middle of their sentence and all these other things. So I have very little tolerance for poor presentations now. I was going to ask about uh, your ideas on communication. I was... Um reading your most recent musing on the website where you discuss Navy F-16s and the fact that some people refuse, refuse to believe the Navy flies F-16s and the communication between you and them. Um, I'd encourage everyone to read the latest musing on the Fighter Pilot Podcast site, by the way. It's all great stuff. Thank you. Yeah, man. Um, but some of your paragraphs deal with pure communication and the underlying humility in the approach to certain conversations, such as the preface, I could be mistaken, but... Or do you have any, you know, do you have any rules that are like kind of hard and fast you apply to everything? Or is it more of a feel it out type of thing to your student and listening to their needs in the direction? Or is it just kind of like, you know, get it or you're, you're out? Well, you know, a, a good instructor, just like I presume a good counselor or a good parent, will, will tailor what is being said or told or whatever shown to the audience, right? So, if you, if you can see that a certain method will work better, then you want to try to do that. But generally, for Top Gun especially, and military aviation in general, except for a one-on-one -on -one brief or debrief, you typically have more than one person. And so there's a standard that exists, and everybody has to kind of get within the cohort standard. And if you can make that work great. If you can't, you might struggle. You might get some individual attention, but for the most part, it's been refined over years. I mean, decades really. And so it's pretty darn good. And it's, it's set so that the middle of the bell curve can handle it. I mean, the tails, some take to it easy and like, okay, get on with it. I got this. And then others like, Hey, I just don't understand. Uh, but for everyone in the middle of the bell curve, it works pretty well. Uh, you know, for me, I, again, part of it is that I've never thought too highly of myself anyway. So one of the ways I just kind of keep myself in check that I'm, I'm not too worried about having an oversized ego, which has never been a problem, but just for me anyway, I, I just, I try to like, when I used to meet people, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm in the Navy. Oh, no kidding. All right, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pilot. Wow, really? What do you fly? Oh, F-18s. You know, so I, I didn't like, you know, it wasn't like, hey, you know, hey, my name's Vincent. I'm an F-18 pilot in the Navy. You know, it's like, <laughs> so I, I, I kind of make it just a little bit of a, a challenge, I guess, or just kind of, I don't know what to call it. But I, I, I try to take the tact of, hey, this is me. I'm real. I put my pants on one leg at a time like you. Uh, I could be mistaken about this, but I'm pretty sure this is true. And uh, so, I, yeah, I try, I try to take a tone where, because as I state in that article, if you take a declarative Hey, the Navy doesn't have F-16s. I mean, you hear that all the time on social media, at least I do, when I post different things. And, and it's just funny to me because it's like, okay, you do know you're on the Fighter Pilot podcast, right? I mean, this is, don't you think maybe we know what we're talking about if we have that title? Maybe not. I mean, I'm certainly wrong at times, but, but I just think it's funny that the people say it that way instead of, hey, I didn't know they had F-16s, right? That's one way to do it. Or I could be wrong, but the Navy does that. No, it's, one guy even said, you probably stole this video and you have no idea what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah. okay, thanks a lot, buddy. So it's become a bit of a personal crusade now. Uh, and it's, in a sense, it's the flavor of the week because before my crusade was uh, breaking down the Hollywood stereotypes of fighter pilots. <laughs> From an IP perspective at Top Gun, you know, what are your 
greatest challenges and then you know what what um where do you get the most happiness from so it's a two-sided question yeah no that's a good question ryan um i'll start with the second one because the the best gratification is when you can take somebody who maybe didn't do it or wasn't doing it well and you can get them to the point where they can do it whether it's a bfm maneuver or something with a radar or dropping a bomb to to make a difference in a person and see the results is more satisfying than than doing it yourself frankly if you ask me Mm -hmm. um the first part was what was the most challenging is Mm -hmm. that right yes sir um i would say especially as I aged in my career, was just keeping up with the latest tactics. Because when you're new and you learn something for the first time, there's nothing else in there to compete with it. And so you're like, okay, this is how it is. And you learn it and you go do it. But all of a sudden it changes. And then five years later, it changes again. And then by the time you're getting towards the end of your career, like, okay, is it A, B, or C? I thought it was C because I know it changed, but maybe it's A because that's like dug in my memory. So... For me, it it became very difficult to keep up with some of the different tactics that changed because our information about the threat changed. And don't get me wrong, that's that's the right thing to do is is Top Gun, you know, they don't set policy. They offer suggestions. They're like a think tank, if you will, for strike fighter tactics in the Navy and the Marine Corps. And so when they look at what they know about the enemy and what we know about ourselves, they say, hey, Top Gun recommends we do this. And those recommendations will change when information is either proven wrong, frankly, sometimes, or we get more information or we know more about whatever it is. And so that became difficult for me to keep all that straight and, um, and just be able to know it well enough that you can teach it and have the credibility to instruct it because, because you are an expert at it. And at Top Gun, you had your subject matter, but you were really, honestly, expected to be an expert in everything. Mm-hmm. And by the time you leave there, you almost are because you've seen so many murder boards, you know, all that stuff just through rote, you know, hitting, hitting you over the head with it. Um, but, but, you know, if you, if you go away from it for a little while and then you start wondering if the information you have is the newest or not, that became a challenge for me. Okay. Interesting. Well, after all that, um, what went into your decision to retire from the Navy? Well, in my case, my upward mobility was limited. I was not selected to be a commanding officer of a squadron, and that's just the needs of the Navy. Not everybody gets to do that. And so ultimately, there's only one chief of naval operations. There's only one president in the United States. And so everyone falls off the train at some point. And for me, once I didn't screen for command, as we call it, it was very clear that I would be getting off sooner than maybe some. And so I actually stuck around a lot longer than I should have for that situation. Uh, But honestly, I just, guys, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I mean, I used to laugh in high school at my friends like, what do you mean you don't know what you want to do? Just go pick something and do it. I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And Mm -hmm. as I was facing the end of my career, I suddenly felt like I should call and apologize to people because I literally had no idea what I wanted to do and kind of found my way happenstance into the airlines. And of course, now that I'm there, where seniority is such a big deal, I wish I'd retired earlier because I'd be more senior. I could maybe be a captain by now. <laughs> but, um, you know, there comes a time where you've got to face the facts. And, and you know, I, I had a lot of fun. I got to do a lot of amazing things. I, I say the only two things I didn't do was eject and shoot somebody down. And truthfully, I didn't want to do either one of those. Would, would I have liked to have known I was good enough to win an aero battle? Sure. But not if it's going to cost somebody his life. So, and I certainly didn't want to throw away a jet or ride an ejection seat. Not everybody fares well after that. So, 
I did I did everything I wanted to do, and uh, I, I consider walking away on top. That's awesome, man. What's the thing you miss most about flying your F-18? Well, two things, and they're unrelated in a sense. One is the camaraderie of the people. Um, even my wife says she misses the, you know, we used to hate, oh, you know, mandatory fun. We're all having to go out to dinner. But you get out there, and they're, they're here are your friends that you spend all this time with, you, you blood, sweat, and tears with, you deploy with. And, you know, you'll have differences just like any other relationship. But, but they're, you know, they're your family, and it's just so great. And you build these amazing relationships. And so when you go to the airlines, it's not like that. You do your job and you go home. I don't barely know another pilot and I certainly don't know his wife. And so, uh, you know, but in a squadron, your family with their kids and everybody. And so I miss that part of it, but the flying part of it, I just miss the sense of power and majesty and control of an F-18 or an F-16 where you can literally say, you know what? I want to go straight up. And you just plug in the afterburner and you can go straight up. And then I want to do a roll or a loop or whatever. And I want to go dance in those clouds over there. I mean, once in a great while when our airliner is uh, going through some clouds, I can sit and for that brief moment, imagine I'm cloud dancing again. And it takes me back. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a glorious feeling. I like to say it's as close to heaven as you'll get on this, on this uh, earth uh, being up, especially at low light, either, either in the morning or at, towards dusk. And uh, dancing with some clouds, it's, that's goodness. How long have you been with the airlines now? Uh, about three years, coming up this spring. Okay. And what are you flying? The 757 and the 767. You get two for one on that one. Wow. Yeah. I am kind of curious with, uh, you know, with all the naval training that you did and now transitioning to, to the airline world, how did your, all of the experience that you have, is it, I think you said 3,000 plus hours, is that right? 3,800 3,800. I mean, how does, how does that all translate to, to flying a big heavy? Well, there's confidence, of course, that you can, if you can land on a carrier at night, you could probably figure out how to land a 757. (laughs) Um, But there's also that you understand the FAA and air traffic control. And if you pull back, you know, the the houses get smaller, you push forward to get bigger. Uh, all, All that stuff is really the hardest part for me was simply learning that, that this isn't, a mission anymore. It's a business. And so the mission isn't to do whatever it takes to, you know, get safely. Well, uh, hold on. I'm getting tongue tied here. They, they want to be safe. They want to turn a business. Um, but it's not necessarily like life or death or a mission. So really it comes down to, there are certain procedures that you have to follow and certain things you have to do because of course they're worried about mishaps surely i mean you got 200 people on that thing and but also they want to make a profit and they want to be on time and they have all these other things and so for me that was a paradigm shift that took a little getting used to plus i'm now for the first time although they don't call it a union you know i'm in a union effectively and so there's different attitudes that go along with that that are a little foreign to me but i've flown with enough former military captains who have said, yeah, I remember what it was like when you, when I was where you are and here's how you got to look at it. And so I've come around and it's fine. And, you know, I take pride now in not so much, you know, landing on the ship or dropping a bomb exactly on the target, but, but basically being transparent. You know, if I can do my job and say hello and goodbye to the people and they don't think, oh, that ride sucked because it was bumpy, which, of course, isn't our fault anyway. But, you know, <laughs> if we can do a good job and a smooth landing and, and handle anything that comes up, I, I count that as a success. So it's just a question of rejiggering your 
expectations for what constitutes success. It's still task oriented, just different tasks. Correct. And, and when you're done, you walk away and, you know, you got paid in the Navy, sure, but you got more than just that. You had the admiration of your citizens. You had the adoration of spectators at the flyover that you just did. And then you land and you go and at halftime, they announce you. I mean, there really is something very noble and patriotic about serving in the military and and the business world's a little different, uh, but certainly the world needs airline pilots to move people in, in commerce. And so, uh, you know, I take some pride in that as well. That's great. Um, I know I can, I can at least speak for myself and probably Ryan as well, but you know, we're both relatively low time private pilots. And I mean, you've, you've gone through and seen and done more than we've, you know, could ever dream of, but do you, uh, do you do any other flying just for personal enjoyment since you've retired? You know, I really don't. Um, I, I, I blame it on the fact that I don't live near a commercial, not commercial, a, um, you know, municipal type airport where it's convenient. Uh, I also blame it on the fact that where I live in San Diego is among the more pricey real estate anywhere in the country. And so disposable income is limited. Um, but in reality, so I don't know if either any of you guys scuba dive. Um, I used to scuba dive and it was, it was fun at first. And you go down and you look at things and you explore and, you know, there's fish and different things. But after a while, it's like, all right, either give me a wreck to explore or give me a spear gun or give me something to do. Uh, you, you said the words task oriented earlier. I am very much an achievement oriented person. I like to check things off my list or build something and see that it's built or destroy it and see it in pieces or whatever it is. Um, so for, for me, for scuba diving, it's like, all right, well, if I'm not going to catch a lobster or, or, or poke a fish, what's the point? You know, I've done it. And so dare I say, and I hope I don't ruin uh, anyone's image of me. I, it's like, I can go fly, but uh, what's the, I mean, give me something to do. Um, yeah, I I love just getting up there and, and dancing in the clouds, but, uh, you know, I, I don't just go, I, I I don't is the short answer right now. It makes perfect sense. There's parts of it that I miss, but, but, uh, not badly enough apparently to, uh, go get in on an airplane, I guess. So Jello, one of the things that, uh, I know we definitely wanted to talk about and we'd be kicking ourselves if we didn't at least mention it, uh, but the awesome podcast that you've produced and currently host, um, which is how we all ultimately came here. Uh, can you touch on this a little bit on your website? And uh, for those who haven't checked it out yet, what inspired you to start the uh, Fighter Pilot Podcast? Yeah, well, it is the Fighter Pilot Podcast. You can find it at thatname.com and on all the usual social media. And a couple things. So early on, of course, I held the fighter pilots in high regard, and then I became one, and I realized, okay, we're not that special. We're just lucky. Um, <laughs> but, but I met a lot of people throughout my career who their eyes would light up when they found out what you did. And, and I always loved that. And it wasn't so much an ego stroke, although, you know, it probably is. But it's like, who doesn't want to feel like they're highly regarded by people? And, and so I enjoyed sharing it with people, and, and not so much because it necessarily scratched an itch for me, but because I knew that they enjoyed it. And it was a way to kind of make them whole, particularly the ones, and I met them all the time, who said, oh, I want to do this, but, uh, you know, life got in the way. And so um, as I was getting ready to retire in 2017, uh, actually prior to that, I realized, like, I can't just walk away from this. I mean, yeah, it's just a job, but it's not. I mean, you, you give so much of yourself and your friends that you've spent time with, and some of them die, and you, you've been to all these amazing places and had these experiences. I can't just walk away. And so I realized a couple things. Number one, 
there's no military aviation podcast out there. At least this was true back then. Uh, number two, there's a lot of people out there who have interest in this. And number three, I don't want to walk away. And so uh, through happenstance of being on a friend of mine's podcast about muscle cars, of all things, he and I got to talking and I said, I don't know that anyone's doing this. And he said, you should totally do it. And so I looked into it while I was in the Navy and a friend of mine who was a lawyer, a JAG, as we would call it, said, eh, if you're going to do it while you're in the Navy, the Navy's going to get to screen everything first. And I said, oh, screw that. So I waited till I got out and it took another year to get it started almost because I did my training at the airlines. And then on January 1st, 2018, it launched and it started and remains a way to educate and inform people on military aviation. Despite the name, we cover all different military aircraft and subjects and topics. Uh, and since then, it has become a source of additional revenue. It pays itself and offers a little more, which is great. And I don't mind that because we still serve people and I feel like it's okay to be compensated for something that people find value in. And so we enjoy doing that and we have a lot of initiatives for things we'd like to do in the future and more ways that we can serve people. What has this done for you personally? Like I, you know, you just explained a lot of this, but you know, for like, does it, is it some sort of validation for you that, you know, this is meaningful content and people want to hear about this stuff because they can't ever experience anything like this. Yes, that is a big one for sure. Um, it's a way to share the opportunities that I was fortunate, blessed to have with the people who frankly made it possible by paying their taxes. And there are a lot of people, as I intimated a moment ago, who wanted to do this and just couldn't. Sometimes it was health. Sometimes it was they met a girl and lo and behold, the baby's on the way and now they got to make a living. So there was a lot of people and are still, I meet just about every day I receive emails that are just so thrilled that this world that was so foreign to them and, and so, oh gosh, I can't think of the best word, but just they wanted to do it and they, but they never did and they still wonder what it's like. Well, now they know because we open it up and share it with them. And I think if anything, we've kind of torn down the mystique a little bit of fighter pilots and military aviators in general. But I think there's some serendipitous revelations for people like, wow, you guys are just, you're just so normal. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're not all Mavericks and, and Icemen. Um, and so uh, that part's been really enjoyable. And again, as I said earlier, I enjoy tearing down stereotypes. Uh, we're normal people. We, we just realize that we were very fortunate. We are very confident in what we do. Yes, some of us do take it over the line of confidence and arrogance, but for the most part, we are just uh, happy. So uh, it's it's been great in that regard. You know, what's been, since you started the podcast, uh, what has been, in your opinion, the most meaningful response or you know, comment or email that you've received uh, from either the podcast in general or a single episode? Wow, there's so many, it's hard to narrow it down to one. Uh, there's the people who, as I mentioned earlier, wanted to do this and now they find out just how great it is and it, it scratches an itch for them. Uh, there are the young men and women who want to do it someday, who are getting a leg up on the information and finding out what it's like. Uh, I've received messages from email, uh, sorry, engineers who have said, you know, I work with pilots, but they're always so busy. They can't explain things to me by listening to your show. I understand better what they mean when they say something about the avionics I work on or whatever. And then honestly, another one, which I never would have expected is the spouse or the would be spouse of the young man or woman who wants to do this, who says, this has really helped me understand this world better. Thank you. We did an episode back when I had a, a permanent 
co-host with our two spouses. And we just talked about what it's like to be in military families when, uh, in this case, the husbands deployed. And a lot of people responded to that saying, thank you. I mean, that's not bullets and landing on carriers and all that. It's the softer side, but it, they really enjoyed it. And so I would say this, the response that I've received and I continue to receive day in and day out has been just heartwarming and validating. Mm. It's good to hear. It is. Um, do you have a uh, single favorite episode that you've done? I mean, I know that the F4 uh, episode got a lot of attention. Uh, I, for one, absolutely loved the B-52 and the B-17 episode. And the Raptor was a nice uh, one as well because I'm co-workers with him. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you guys have children, but it's like asking me which one's my favorite kid. I mean, um, obviously, there are some I like, yeah, some I like more than others. Um, I guess just for the simp, uh, for the sake of simplicity, I will tell you that the one that really uh, surprised me the most was the C two Greyhound. Mm-hmm. because it was all about the guest. And I even told them ahead of time, like, hey, we're going to have some fun with this because it's not a glamorous aircraft. It's kind of ugly. It's not a really fancy mission, but it's important. But he made the difference. He talked about a mishap, and he got a little bit vulnerable, got a little choked up. And I had people write me and say, man, my eyes got misty when I listened to him. I mean, mm-hmm. So that was the, the biggest underdog victory story, I think, ever. And it's all thanks to J-Lo. I mean, he was the man and told a great story. And, and just people, I think one guy said, it made me fall in love with a C2. And I thought, man, that's as good as it gets right there. So, um, you know, obviously the F-14 was a big hit. Um, the F-4, for the reasons you stated, uh, certainly the... Um, SR-71 was fun because everyone knows the ground speed story and, and all that. Uh, episode one, because it was the first one and right out of the gate and learning the hard way, you know. So, um, yeah, there's been a lot and uh, it's it's been a great journey. and I'm going to keep it going. That's awesome, man. We, we appreciate what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my uh, my drives to and from work, are, they, uh, they're not the same. So I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Good. But, uh, you're, all, you're welcome. Jello, this has been a great time chatting with you. Uh, we want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us tonight. And more importantly, thank you for your all your years of service to our country. To our listeners, do yourself a favor and go check out the Fighter Pilot Podcast. It's one of the best out there, if not the best. We promise you won't be disappointed. Well, that's kind of you to say. Thank you. So that was amazing. What a great guy Jello is. I think yeah. we could have... Could have gone on for another couple of hours with that. Uh, what did you guys think? Yeah, what an incredible, incredible guest that we had. I mean, he's done such a great job, not only with the podcast, but, you know, educating, uh, you know, the folks that are around aviation and the folks want, that want to, you know, hop into the cockpit uh, and join our military. I'd love to sit down and, and, and get a drink with the guy and just bend his ear some more. But it, it was it was a very fast episode. It was, he's a super humble guy, too, and it was really nice to put all the bits and pieces of his life that were kind of scattered among all the episodes of the podcast together into kind of one idea in one one continuous story. Um, he's a good storyteller, too. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I think, it's, uh, I think he does a really nice job on his podcast of uh, not necessarily making it about him. It's about whatever the topic is, the aircraft, the fighter pilots, uh, he sprinkles some details about his personal life in there uh, throughout, but you almost kind of have to listen to all the episodes to uh, 
to get the full full take on everything. So which is recommended. Absolutely, it's awesome. Yep, we can't recommend it enough. But uh, he has a lot of incredible guests on there. Mm-hmm. So that should do it for episode seven. I want to say thanks to Nick and Ryan for taking the time out of their evenings to join us, and, and a uh, special thank you uh, to Jello. Uh, it was great talking to him, and uh, we uh, look forward to getting this out, and, and uh, hopefully you all enjoy it. You can find Nick Pascarella on Instagram at, at Nick's Glass Eye, Ryan Kelly at Ryguy Aviation, and you can find me at gravity.images. This is Nick Moore signing off until next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. Full Disc Aviation is a group of aviation photographers and enthusiasts that are passionate about sharing our love for aviation with you. Visit our website at fulldiscaviation.com for exclusive interviews, stories, and photo galleries, and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for frequent content updates. Also, please leave us a review in iTunes. We always welcome any feedback that can improve the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Full Disc Aviation Podcast. And don't forget, Full Disc begins at 160th.